Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And as I mentioned on Tuesday, I am officially moved in, or I guess maybe moved in in quotation marks. We still have a lot of boxes, but we are in sunny eastern Washington, and wow, there's a lot less rain here. Anyone that's familiar with Seattle knows that they are known for rain, and there's a reason for it. We left after the rainiest May in 74 years, so we are enjoying the sunny weather, and even with rain here over the weekend, it was just like light thunderstorms and a couple flash floods, and then it was done in five to ten minutes. It was pretty remarkable. But you didn't listen to this podcast to hear about the weather in Washington State. I think so. I will not talk about that anymore. <laughs> I will say I am completely exhausted, but hope that this will still be a great episode. And I think it will be. To be honest, I have redone this outline twice, maybe two and a half times, because there is so much going on, and I want to talk about all of it. But at the same time, nobody needs or is able or wants to listen to four hours of fraud news. Okay, maybe a couple of you, and I could probably name you, but not as many. So I will carry over some other things like more trends and stuff next week. But the three things I was going to talk about today are the first one is a headline that reads FBI warns businesses of, and I'm putting that in quotation marks because it's an old fraud scheme, but it's back in several states. And this one I know many retailers with mortar stores are experiencing as well. It's interesting that it's coming from the FBI as well. That really makes it much more of a trend than just a couple of retailers that have mentioned it on my bi-weekly call, the last two calls, so the last month or so. But I will talk a little bit about that first. Then the probably the biggest story I will talk about and probably spend the most time on is there are several class action lawsuits filed against very large banks, especially in the U.S., due to rampant fraud on the Zelle peer-to-peer money transferring app. There are a lot of lessons to learn out of this, and I believe this is going to be a major shift. Banks manage fraud and deal with fraud and are liable for financial fraud that are not done on credit cards. And I think there are lessons we can all learn from that, whether you are in e-commerce or marketplace or fintech, or you work for a bank, or you're an interested party that enjoys listening to this. So I think that is definitely something that's going to impact some big change in the next few months, maybe year at the max. Uh, And then lastly, there was a New York Times article over this past weekend in regards to OpenSea. That's O-P-E-N and an S-E-A, not the letter, but the ocean. If you're familiar with crypto or NFT at all, you know who I'm talking about, but they're the world's biggest crypto and NFT marketplace. And there are a lot of reports of thefts and fraud and lawsuits there as well. And so I think actually both of these last two stories have some very common themes. And it also shows a change in consumer attitudes towards scams and fraud and all that, as well as just how much it has quadrupled, if not, well, it hasn't even, I don't even know the exact numbers, but fraud has just exploded in the last two years, especially online fraud in various capacities. And so this is one way that the market or that consumers are really trying to change some things. So 
I will go into that quite a bit more later. But the first one I wanted to talk about was what's going on on targeting retailers, especially those with brick and mortar stores. And I think that this is actually an effect of the fact that online fraud is getting harder to do, right? So the lower level criminals who try to use stolen credit cards or other things, other methods to commit payment fraud online are oftentimes discovered. I mean, obviously it depends on the type of fraud tool used. It depends on the person who's running fraud and how strategy works. There's a lot of subjective pieces. And I will probably say, and I probably have, and I probably will say this on almost every single episode, but not all fraud solutions are created equal. And so there are definitely some retailers that have different fraud issues depending on the tool that they use, as well as different levels of new fraud, right? Because if if traditional payment fraud or a method card testing or card cracking or whatever it's going to be doesn't work on your website anymore, they'll often go to methods. And sometimes they go more sophisticated and sometimes they go backwards into old school things. And I think I have said this before. I know my former podcast partner has said this before. I've heard other people say it as well, that honestly, the tools that fraudsters use don't really change, but the way they use them change sometimes and the methods that they use change sometimes. And sometimes they'll modify them a little bit. The tools themselves don't really change. So this is something we saw 15, 20 years ago. It was rampant, even before there was internet. And there is phone calls, phone sales, and it's basically, it just works as simple as it sounds, right? So someone with a stolen credit card calls into a store at their local location, places an order, usually a large order. They especially love talking to sales reps that have commission because obviously you're probably going to silence that little voice in your head that's going to sound suspicious if you're realizing that you get a percentage of that sale. And this happens a lot at luxury goods retailers. I've worked with one of the largest in a consulting capacity, and this was definitely an issue that we needed to address when I uh, worked with them. And uh, so they call and they place an order on a stolen card, and then someone comes to pick it up. It's oftentimes not the person who calls, it's Somebody they hire online, they pay through a peer-to-peer app uh, similar to Zelle or Cash App or Venmo or PayPal. And they just think that they're like running an errand, right? Or they might hire like a gopher through an app where you can hire people to do errands for you. So oftentimes the people who are picking up the items have no idea that they're involved in fraud. And then they'll either mail them or meet the person somewhere else. So because it is challenging to place orders online for a lot of companies with stolen credit cards, because our methods have gotten much better over the years. They've realized that calling into the store, there's no device ID. There's nothing really captured. They're keying in the sale, so they don't need the card present like they would if they came into the store. There's This is actually kind of a part of a bigger trend that Frank McKenna actually just mentioned on LinkedIn earlier this week, and that is the fraudsters are going old school. This is, that's what he said, but I'll say it too. Where there's a lot more check fraud than ever before. Frank sent some good articles on that. There's disability insurance claims targeting states via facts that have been fraudulent. I think I saw that there was like 40,000 claims faxed to the state of California that were all fraudulent. They're trying to go around the internet because they know that the internet captures a lot of signals that might make it obvious that they are committing fraud and a bad actor. So I wanted to share, there's a couple things that you can do if your company is faced with this type of fraud. One, and I think this is kind of the most common, is educating your sales associates in the store about not taking phone orders at all or 
really making sure it's a customer you've had for a long time. But both of those are challenging to enforce and really especially hard if they're commissioned. But also fraudsters that call on the phone are really good social engineers. So they're really good at making it sound legitimate about why they need to place this phone order. And most people who are sales associates, I mean, I started out in retail and restaurants, but in retail, you're told your job is to provide for the customer and do what they want. So just educating your customer service reps or your well, your sales associates in store not to take phone orders is not as enforceable and not foolproof, right? One thing that one very large retailer did a few years ago that worked really well, but I know not everyone can, depending on your POS system, is they just fully blocked the ability to key in a credit card transaction in their POS systems in the stores. Because of EMV, and then there's still the default to swipe in the U.S. anyway, they've made it so that nobody, even if somebody calls and is very convincing and a sales rep wanted to key in the transaction, they just couldn't. But that also prevents in-store fraud when they might mess up the physical card or a copy of the card. They might damage the chip or and or damage the mag stripe so that you have to key it in because they know that there are less less signals also from fraud from that too, from a physical standpoint. So, or maybe they didn't copy it down, right? Maybe they weren't able to program a computer chip or a EMV chip. So they just damaged it and put another card number on that card or put a card, just wrote a card number on there basically. I mean, not with pen, obviously, but it's pretty easy to duplicate credit cards. It's not that expensive, unfortunately, to get the equipment. So it's possible to do so. Oh, so anyway, that was one option. They did say that they, in each store, left one terminal that did allow key to credit card transactions for management to use just in case there was a situation of a business or something like that calling that they knew. And But there's a lot of the requirements for those orders. They have to fill out a whole form and they have to have the person sign it when they come and all this stuff. So if you are experiencing this issue and you have a brick and mortar store, I think the best solution is to talk with your POS provider and determine if you are able to just disable keyed transactions. That is a really good way. There's obviously training your frontline staff and your sales associates is important, but especially for big scale retailers, it's really a challenge to have those go across the board. So I thought that was a really good solution. And it's one done by a well-known company that's very reputable and it has worked very well for them. They said they saw their fraud numbers go down very significantly on phone sales and just chargebacks in general in the stores. So take that for what it is. And I hope that's helpful for those of you who may be seeing this as well. It looks like the FBI is saying that it's happening in seven states or eight states, but I would say it's safe to assume it's happening everywhere. Uh, and I do know that in other parts of the world beyond the U.S., this does happen, but it's much harder for various reasons. So unfortunately, the U.S. is still catching up on technology and all kinds, all points of. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. 
They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do. And they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Security. So the main piece of news I wanted to share is one that I think we can learn a lot about and I'll provide some backstory. So I think that most everyone is probably familiar with Zelle, Z-E-L-E. I actually have used it to pay my housekeeper for the last two years, which we miss her a lot. It's such a privileged thing and we're so grateful that we uh, were able to have her come twice a month and now we moved away from her, but that's not important. (laughs) Uh, But it's very easy, right? So a lot of banks have implemented it into their online banking system, my bank included as kind of a response or an alternative to the independent peer-to-peer money transferring apps like Cash App, Venmo, PayPal has something similar because they've gotten so popular. And the convenience is so nice. I mean, when we were moving and we decided to sell our dining room table because I was inheriting one from a family member that passed away, I was able to post it on a marketplace. Somebody came and picked it up. They paid me via Venmo and then they took the table. Super simple. So there's a great things about it. But there's also, (laughs) like with any innovation, there are always risks. And I have stayed away from talking about Zelle-specific fraud for a while. I think primarily because the majority of those of you that listen are in e-commerce and marketplace and fintech and not banking fraud. But I actually know that there are several newer listeners that are on the banking fraud side. But also, I like I mentioned earlier, I think there's a lot of things that Everyone in fraud prevention can and should learn from this. So especially with all of these things happening now. So in the last month, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Navy, Federal Credit Union, TD Bank, and as recently as just last Friday, Capital One have all been hit with class action lawsuits in the past, just in this past month. The lawsuits claim that the Zelle service is not safe. And as a result of fraud, consumers lost money. There was an article in the New York Times in March stating that fraud on Zelle is flourishing and I hope I can read my handwriting here. Oh, and that banks carried claimed that it's not their problem. Experts, including friend of fraudology, Frank McKenna, believe that there are a lot more lawsuits to come. He named a few banks in a recent article that he published on Sunday that he named a few that may possibly be uh, next. But uh, I think if you're a big bank and you have Zelle in your network, this is something that you should be very worried about. So uh, the lawsuit against TD Bank states that Zelle comes with huge undisclosed 
disclose risks and that banks didn't include in the details of service or the terms of service for customers, as I clip my page. The lawsuit also said that TD Bank omits a key fact that there is virtually no recourse to recuperate money lost due to fraud. So I'm going to stop here for a second. There is so much fraud on these systems. And I mean, there's a couple different kinds, right? There's the kind that's the money laundering piece and they're setting it up as a depository uh, system for loans or unemployment fraud, PPP, et cetera. We saw this big time during COVID in the U.S. where a lot of the DDAs, the deposit bank account numbers that were uh, put in to accept claims belonged to some of these peer-to-peer -peer apps. So there's that kind of fraud. There's also some like tangential fraud on their corresponding credit cards and other things that some merchants have seen. But the majority of that actually is on the issuer. It's just that the merchants wanted to get in touch with someone there to let them know. And I've made a few introductions to do that over the last few months. But the majority of fraud is targeting consumers. It's what is known as victim-assisted fraud, where they're called or they're emailed or something else, and they're told that they owe the IRS, which is our tax authority in the U.S., a lot of money. And the only way they can pay, sometimes it's through gift cards, other times it's through setting up a transfer. There are other more sophisticated ones that will say that they are from the fraud department of a couple of the biggest online merchants, and they will say that they were mistakenly charged $800 for an iPhone and that they just want to credit them back. They make them download an app that allows the fraudster to see everything, to have access to that phone. So basically malware. And then they say, okay, well, now that I can see your screen on your phone, let's go ahead and go into your account to see if that money has you know left your account. And they're putting fear into the person and they're just not thinking and it's quick. We got to do this quick. And don't really give them a lot of time to go, huh, wait a minute, would that company really call me and ask to see my bank account? I mean, it's just, and remember, these are things that probably to you and I seem pretty like no brainers, but the majority of the world doesn't work in our world. They don't know about these. They aren't educated about them. So how can we expect them to know or to second guess it if we're not telling them about it? And that really is a huge part of these lawsuits. They're saying that the banks knew that there was so much fraud on here. The banks are not reimbursing their victims we get, or the victims of fraud. I guess they're not victims of the bank, but the victims of fraud for Zelle because it's they're not required to. Right now, there's no liability there. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But then they're saying instead of all that, then also they're not really putting any stops in place. They're not saying, hey, are you sure you know this person? Or you need to provide us a little bit more information about that person before you transfer this money. Or we're going to put this money on a hold for a little bit because it's a large amount and you've never used this service before or whatever those indicators are. These lawsuits are saying that the banks haven't put those in place. And why haven't they put them in place? Well, could be because they don't really have liability. And then when a victim calls and says, oh my gosh, I was scammed for $1,500 or $5,000 or whatever, the bank just kind of shrugs their shoulders and says, I'm sorry, you're SOL, which stands for shit out of luck. I just realized that might be like a very Americanized thing. And I know there are a lot of you internationally, so trying to be inclusive here. So basically the lawsuits go on to contend that all banks on the Zelle network know full well that with Zelle, they have a widespread fraud problem on their hands, but have failed to warn account holders of the risks or to protect those who have fallen victim to fraud. The lawsuit against Navy Federal Credit Union, Bank of America, and the Capital One and Wells Fargo are all very similar. They say that customers aren't warned or educated about fraud tactics and methods, and there's virtually no recourse to get their money back once they realize that 
they were victims of scams. These lawsuits, along with a judgment called Reg E that was put out by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the U.S. last year, that Reg E basically signaled that banks may have to start having some liability there and having to pay back consumers. And so that has kind of made people in banking think, oh, this might be coming. But the CFPB is also not a regulating body. They're more of an advising body, similar to the Federal Reserve. So there are some people in Congress and are actually senators. I know Dick Durbin has done a lot on interchange, which was going to be a topic today, but we next week. If you're not aware, interchange is going up by a lot, and that's going to impact inflation and other issues in the business. But that again next week. Um, I just said to prioritize. So up until now, banks have not been legally, and they still aren't, legally liable to reimburse their customers for fraud on their platforms, obviously aside from credit cards, because credit cards are mandated by Visa and MasterCard or Amex and Discover. But with the banks, it's the open loop network. So it's MasterCard and Visa. There are obviously liability rules there, but there aren't on ACH transactions, on electronic funds transactions, on these peer, you know, that's really what these peer-to-peer -peer money transfers are, is EFTs, electronic funds transfers. There's really no regulating body that has said, hey, this is your responsibility and that's your responsibility, like the card brands have done. So I know that some banks will, it's kind of at their own discretion when they'll reimburse people. And unfortunately, and, and I know this from people that work in banks and fraud, and they have a hard time with it too, but I know it's business, but They'll often look at the size of the account and just the overall value of the person to decide if they're going to reimburse them or not for fraud. And oftentimes, unfortunately, a lot of these scams and frauds are impacting people with fixed incomes and people that maybe a bank wouldn't think is a VIP customer and one that they want to keep happy. And unfortunately, then they are now out this money and they can't pay their rent or they can't pay for gas or food or daycare or whatever those needs are because most of them are paycheck to paycheck and they're you know, spread thin. You add all of the financial issues happening in the world with a recession coming and inflation happening and it's really bad for consumers that are victims of this. With customers trained to assume that someone will reimburse them for fraud, if fraud occurs, this becomes an even bigger issue, right? And it's often because of credit cards. I had a very good conversation with two people at one client company this morning about that and just the consumer opinions that are changing. I think I mentioned it a little bit on last Thursday's episode, but that's something I kind of want to explore more in a future episode because I do think that consumer attitudes on this are changing. But at the same time, I totally see the point, right? I, it can be argued that if financial institutions are aware of common fraud schemes targeting their customers, and they are, that was publicly released in the New York Times back in March. I also just know that from conversations, but they've been aware for years and it's only gotten worse in the last two years as peer-to-peer -peer money transferring has gotten more popular, as scams are higher, just so many different reasons. If you haven't read the or listened to the episode a few weeks ago on online fraud as an estate and emergency, you'll understand some of like the geopolitical impacts on fraud right now that are increasing it along with a lot of other reasons. So, I mean, if they're aware of all those things, they should at least 
invest in consumer education. That's what's being argued, and I will agree with that. Fraud and victim-assisted scams are on the rise, and with banks not taking responsibility and liability, consumers are turning to the media. They're filing lawsuits. They're, you know, trying to influence regulations. This is what happens when a company doesn't take fraud seriously, when they're not proactive about it, and people start losing money. All of a sudden, that's when your company's name ends up in headlines. I've seen it so many times in e-commerce, in fintech, et cetera, where I know that a company has some pretty bad fraud issues and that they're not taking them seriously and, and not doing what they should, but they aren't interested in receiving help or they think that they have it under control. And then a few months later, I see a public headline and I'm like, oh, I knew about that six months ago, but because of how important people's trust is to me, I'm not going to the media to tell them. So I'll only comment on like trends, overall best practices. I won't comment on specific companies. So that's not because of me, but it comes out because mostly almost always because of customers that are upset, right? When a company has really bad account takeover and they're not signaling to the customers that they're taking care of it in a you know, very quick manner, that's going to end up in headlines. There's so many other examples. This is, this is really similar, and this is what I found interesting, to some backlash in the UK five years ago. And those of you that are in the UK and in fraud prevention, you know about this already. I did too. So if I knew it, you definitely did. But for others, we'll catch them up. There was a quote from the Royal Bank of Scotland CEO in 2017 that got him in a lot of trouble. When he told reporters that victims should not expect refunds when they fall victim to fraud and that banks shouldn't be blamed when customers give out or lose their bank account details to online fishers and fraudsters that con them. He said that the bank had no duty of care to victims. I understand that argument in a way, or I understand that way of thinking. And it's very victim blaming. And I've talked about that in the past, how we just can't blame. I mean, if someone has fallen for a scan maybe several times, like, sure, we can go, hey, you know what? Like, maybe you need to have somebody else have access to your bank account instead, and you have to talk to them before you can transfer any money out or something like that. But for the most part, especially if these banks have not gone out of their way to educate their customers, they can't assume that the customers know all of the latest scams and phishing tactics, right? That's not their world. So... We can't assume that if you're not telling them, you can't assume that they know. That's my biggest issue with this. So after that comment, over the next five years, the UK government forced banks to begin reimbursing scam victims. And now UK consumers have the most protection against scams in the world. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any customer responsibility and consumer responsibility, but again, we can't expect them to just know about it. And this is hearsay, so I'm saying that right now, but I have heard from, I think, very reliable sources that executive, and I think it's published somewhere. I just haven't, I didn't have time to look, and I'm sorry for that, but I've heard that some execs at this company and at the company that owns Zell have said that there's nothing they can do and that they blame consumers for not educating themselves. But people expect to be educated on scams. I mean, that's a big reason why they fall victim to them because no one told them that they could get a call from someone claiming to be the IRS or that a family member was in jail. There was several years ago, and I think I talked about this towards the beginning of the podcast, so like a year and a half ago, my grandmother received a call and they claimed to be from the Social Security Administration. And she told me later, well, I knew that the IRS won't call and ask for my Social Security number and won't, they won't ever ask me for money over the phone because I saw that on the local news. But I didn't know that the Social Security Administration also wouldn't call and that was a scam. And I think that's just such a good example, right? Like we have to inform them. And 
yes, you can lead a horse to water and all of that. But if you're not doing any of it, then you can't just shrug your shoulders, especially because we, of all people, those of us in online fraud, we know there are signals when fraud is happening. We know there are things that can be done. So it's an interesting case overall of cause and effect, right? So as online merchants know all too well, when your company is financially liable for fraud, the fraud can be identified and prevented. Is it expensive? Yes. Is it worth it? Yeah, because you save so much more money than you pay for it through resources and through technology, et cetera. And you can't prevent 100% of it at all. I mean, it's proverbially a cat and mouse game, right? So you close one door and they find a window. But suddenly it becomes important for the company to identify signs of fraud before a transaction is approved or in the bank's case, money is transferred. So that's, I think, what these whole cases are saying is, hey, you're the one that has the signals, right? You're the one that sees that this user only uses Zelle to transfer $50 to this one person every other week. Or in my case, it was a couple hundred dollars every other week. And all of a sudden they're sending $2,000 to someone that they don't know. Their phone number isn't in their phone. Like there's so many things too that your banking app can get signals to. You can get a lot of the signals through the phone. So the banking app should be able to know, well, do you have that phone number in your phone? Do you interact with that person? All of those things. Sometimes they can even go as far as finding out if you have a picture of them on your phone, but that's a whole other technology that I don't know is available yet or not, but it was definitely talked about a couple of years ago. As a consumer, I find it creepy. As a fraud professional, I, found, I find it intriguing. And that's a lot of technology in our industry, honestly. So I'm predicting that should banks be held liable? And I think that is where we are headed with these lawsuits, with conversations with Congress and CFPB and others, and with uh, Reg E announcement and all that, that the fraud budgets in banking will be more than double if the U.S. government assigns them liability for repaying scam victims. That could be a huge cost to them that they'll probably transfer on to their users, but... It's one that we've had to learn for a long time, right? I mean, the card brands assigned liability of credit card fraud decades ago. And we could argue uh, pretty well, I think, that they did this before the invention of the internet and it needs to be updated. But those liabilities assigned responsibilities for prevention. By assigning financial liability, you are assigning responsibility to prevent the fraud. And that is... If the banks aren't going to go out of their way or won't take responsibility to at least fund more prevention education and mechanisms to identify patterns and things that look suspicious, which we all know that they're there, they're just maybe not ingesting those patterns and acting on them because they really have to and that can be expensive then the government may need to step in. I, I mean, I understand free market and all of that, but there are also times when if businesses aren't going to do the responsible thing, they need to be corrected. So I also wouldn't be surprised if other P2P apps like Venmo, Cash App, et cetera, will be next. For one example, and I'm going to kudos Venmo here, uh, and that is that several months ago, they added a feature where if you are sending money to someone you haven't sent money to before, you have to input the last four digits of their phone number. Now, obviously there are ways to get around, but I know it has stopped some scams and it has stopped. It's been just that extra step that might make someone go, huh, that makes me think there's probably scams. Maybe I should think if this is right or not, or they have to ask them or whatever it is, right? The person calling can say, oh, you're going to need the last four digits of my phone number. Here it is. But that is one 
step that they were able to do that the other apps, to my knowledge, haven't done. And overall, this is a good example of what can happen if companies don't protect their customers or their consumers, or at least educate them on common scams. Probably if you were playing a drinking game at the beginning of this, the word would have been education and it would have been used a lot. So that leads us to the last story of the day I'm going to talk about. And this is very similar to things going on with Zelle. OpenSea, as I said at the beginning, that's open and then S-E-A, is the largest and well-known crypto and NFT marketplace. And it's also in the headlines for stolen and plagiarized NFTs and for not doing enough about it. Again, this is what happens when companies don't prioritize this. And I'll talk, I'll, I'll bring it about that in a minute, but so basically, the basic gist is that customers claim that the company has made a lot well, this is actually in quotation marks, so I want to make sure that's clear. The company has made a lot of stupid, dumb mistakes, and they don't really know what they're doing. That is what one customer said in the New York Times article from last weekend. There's also some theories from customers that because they take a percentage of every transaction on their platform, that they have an incentive to kind of look the other way. I would say that if those are funded by credit cards, then... That's not the case. However, a lot of them are paid for through crypto or the other thing is it's not all payment fraud. There's a lot of phishing scams and a lot of plagiarized and just fake NFTs. If you are not familiar with NFTs, I highly recommend listening to the episode with Matt Vega. I don't have the number on hand, but I know it was a couple of months ago and you could just put in Vega, V-E-G-A or NFT in the search under this podcast and should be able to pop right up. He works for a company called Candy Digital that provides NFTs for Major League Baseball as well as NASCAR. And they also have a marketplace function, but it is a closed loop. And he talked a lot about that on the episode as far as why they chose to go closed loop first, whereas you can only buy and sell their NFTs on their site because they can authenticate them. The problem with selling NFTs on a site that didn't issue those is that they can't be authenticated. And really, NFTs are nothing more than a link. I know people are going to get mad at me for saying that, but it's an image that is supposedly rare and all that. But somebody could just take a screenshot or copy it or copy the link or do an account takeover to your wallet where you're storing your NFTs and take those out. There's just, it's really rife with fraud. And I've been hearing that for months, but again, I don't name company names unless they're in heads. So that's, gosh, if I called out everyone that had fraud, that'd be a long list. And I also wouldn't have as many friends or people that trust me to tell me. There's just a lot of phishing attempts and not enough account security for account takeovers and verification authentication. There's not a lot of security and due diligence at all on new accounts as well as NFTs. I do know that they have implemented some scanning features to try to identify plagiarized art. It's really hard to do and it's a challenge. And there's not, because NFTs have happened so quickly, there's not really a like a, a single source where you can verify their authenticity, especially because so many different companies and even individual people can create an F NFT. Matt Vega, along with Supes Ranjan and a couple other people that spoke at MRC on NFTs and crypto fraud, they actually took a selfie at MRC with the audience in the background and put it up on OpenSea as an NFT. So anyone can create them and there's just not a lot of... Oh, the other thing is the, the plagiarized art. There's an artist collective called Deviant Art, and they ran scans on OpenSea and found over 290,000 instances of plagiarism. 
I don't exactly know the time frame of that, but that's a lot. And again, it, I'm not faulting them for it, but that's something that should have been thought of and they should have put some protections in place to be able to further authenticate NFTs rather than just making it a full open marketplace. Because as anyone who's been in uh, fraud or trust and safety in marketplaces knows, even if you're just the platform providing the purchase and the sale, it's going, you're going to be the one blamed because you're the one facilitating those sales and also taking a cut. And you're the one that sees both sides, right? You've got that 10,000 foot view. So you should be able to identify some patterns of fraud. I'm not saying all of this is easy. When it's newer items, it can be a little tricky and you might learn just as quickly as when the scams happen, but you need to be able to be nimble and able to have a strategy that can grow and quickly adapt to new fraud issues and new threats. It just seems like their overall policies and trust and safety had just been reactive. Uh, and reactive policies on trust and safety and fraud prevention can cause upset customers, bad headlines, potential lawsuits, and overall chaos. It's kind of, it's very similar to what's happening with the banks and Zell too. So this is a, this kind of theme of the week. NFT sales have dropped 90% since September. I know just even a few months ago, there were celebrities endorsing NFTs and it was like the hate and all that. And you know, I listened to a pretty good podcast. I'm going to see if I can pull it up really fast because I can't remember what it's called, but they did some really good talks about NFTs and the risks around them. And so I, one of the things they had pointed out is that at some point there's going to be a loser, right? If people continually sell these for high dollars, then at some point someone's going to be left holding that hot potato. And it may not continue to increase in value and you may lose money. And that is what has happened many times. And I think I even talked about a celebrity that had, gosh, was it Seth Green? I want to say it was Seth Green who had uh, show rights to create a TV show based on his Bored Ape NFT. His Bored Ape NFT was stolen out of his wallet because of a phishing scam, a targeted phishing scam. And because he no longer owned the NFT, he no longer was able to get the show rights to make a TV show about this bored aped NFT character. I feel like all those words that just came out of my mouth right now, I wouldn't have ever said them even just a few years ago. So the name of the podcast that I found interesting, and it really talks a lot about crypto and NFT scams and fraud, it's called Scam Con. It's by Matt Bender. He has another podcast as well. I heard him on a podcast I listen to regularly, and I just thought it was really interesting. So I don't listen to every episode, but if you are interested in learning more about that. Also, so we were on a break with Stephen Sargent. I really want to ask him why he named his podcast that after a friend, a very popular phrase in Friends when, but I don't know, the only thing I could think of is blockchain and breaking. I don't know. I'm very curious. But he also talks about crypto compliance and some fraud related issues there too. So... Just wrapping this up, especially with these last two stories, this is why it's absolutely critical, especially with new business models and emerging markets and new offerings, crypto and NFTs being one of them, but also peer-to-peer -peer money transferring. So it's just really important for any company that's going into this to hire someone or a consultant, I mean, I might know one, uh, to, or a couple actually, to create a comprehensive fraud strategy and to consider as many potential risks as possible and then to prepare for them and to have a fraud strategy that can grow and adapt very quickly, whether that's layered 
whether that's selecting a provider that you know is on the forefront of the newer, I should just say like newer, more innovative business models, those that work in complex business models like online gaming and, and all those that have to be really good and cutting edge, gambling especially, like all of those ones. So really looking at it from end to end and thinking, where are all the ways that this can be taken advantage of? And then what happens when something like that happens? You know, what is our response strategy with, when consumers call with issues? And how are we going to adapt quickly? What are some extra layers or different processes and policies we can put in place to prevent new abuse and fraud when it happens? It's critical for that. And a lot of times what happens though with startups, they're just looking at the upside. And I know that's really important for founders of startup companies to, to really focus primarily on the potential upside. But if you want your company to last for long term, you need to at least have somebody who's thinking about what happens if there are bad users, because fraudsters are the best early adopters of technology. They love innovative solutions. They love figuring out how they can you know, profit off of it and manipulate it and take advantage of it. But they also know that a lot of times with new businesses and new business models and startups, that they aren't thinking about risk right away. And so there's this window of time for opportunity for fraudsters to really take advantage. And that can be detrimental to startups. I have seen more than one startup take primarily because of fraud or because whether it's chargebacks or whether it's these things where the customer's left holding the bag and they're not happy either. And by the way, those are customers that you're not going to get back. Those are customers on the banking side are withdrawing their money from these banks and transferring them to other banks. And maybe one or two customers doesn't have a lot of money and that's fine. But when it starts being hundreds and thousands, that can have a real impact. Or if it's a marketplace platform or e-commerce or other kinds of consumer-focused fintech. You're losing those customers and you bet that they're telling a lot of people. They're telling their friends, they're telling their family, I got scammed on X. Don't go to this because you're going to lose money or you could lose money. So there's so many reasons why it's important to think about risk from an, like a comprehensive fraud strategy at the very beginning. And I realize I'm probably mostly preaching to the converted here, but I think that we all need to start preaching that this isn't just about the dollar value that you're going to lose. Even if you don't technically have liability, there's going to be a serious reputational issue. And even if you technically can just say, oh, we're open source and we just let whoever, whatever, and buy at your own risk, the people are going to hold you accountable. And the market is going to speak to that. And especially for startups, it's critical to have a really good reputation. So I think that it's important for all of us and all of you listening to really socialize that within leadership within your company, that it's so much fraud prevention is so much more than preventing losses in dollars. It's about retaining your customers. It's about good customer experience. It's about trying to avoid being in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for something negative. Those are all very important. And I think that having clear policies, educating customers frequently on new scams that might be happening on your platform. And remember the case study I shared a few weeks ago about the company that they kind of did an A-B test and one half of customers got kind of these security measures forced on them and the other half were educated about why they're important, why it's important to have a different unique password on their website. What happens if they don't? All of those things. 
and they saw a 10x increase in spend on the customers that were educated. Those customers felt like they could really trust that company and they purchased more from them than from their competitors. That's huge. So huge. Being able to increase your sales by 10x is way better than just like preventing a few chargebacks. I mean, now proving that you were able to do that by sales is more challenging. They did an A-B test, so they were able to confirm it, but there have kind of been other factors at play as well. And then in addition to educating them on new scams and just how to protect themselves and in turn protect your company, it's also really important to make it difficult to defraud your company and your customers. And unfortunately, not enough companies are able to do that. And I know that it's not always for lack of trying on the fraud department's part. It's also very important for leadership to understand the importance, to listen to those experts, to hire the right people, to select the right tools, just all of those things. It's so important. I've seen so many examples in the last several years of one of those things not happening, and then it just kind of snowballs. It, it can get out of hand real fast, a spark, right? If the conditions are right, it can turn into a forest fire. And so it's very important to try to check all those boxes. And we've seen this in buy now, pay later. We've seen this in alternative payment methods like PayPal and others. And you mix massive, explosive, like fast growth with something new and innovative. And oftentimes the frog kind of gets buried in until it comes to a tipping point or a boiling point. And so if you are, you know, talking with other companies, if you're thinking about taking a position with a brand new company, make sure that they are open to feedback. Make sure that they want to protect their bottom line and their customers. And it's not just about always acquiring new customers, because as we know, you only focus on customer acquisition, you're going to acquire a heck of a lot of fraudsters. So that's where I'm going to end today. I hope you've learned something. I always enjoy hearing from you and knowing what resonated with you, what was interesting to you, what you want to learn next. That's super helpful. We are still going to be sending out a survey soon and we're working on a few other things too. Truthfully, I have to get caught up on episodes before we can do some more fun stuff. Again, thank you all for listening and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.